Peace. Welcome on the show, dear Wag the Dog FM fan. Glad to have you on board yet again for this episode of uh, of this week. Now, some of you don't know this, and probably most of my listeners don't know this, but I am a, a bit of a history buff. And I thought, well, what do I know about my own profession's history? And in fact, going back to the PR school I studied at, um, not very much, in fact. And that's why I thought it would be a good idea to look at the history of public relations with Professor Tom Watson. Uh, Tom is a professor of PR in uh, the media school. He is only the second professoral appointment in the field of PR in the UK. Uh, he's, a, you know, he's a corporate PR guy who now uh, teaches, so he has a, really a consultancy business background as well. He knows how the job is done. And um, he's um, one of the speakers and organizers, I think, uh, of, a, of a big international conference about the history of PR uh, next month, but more on that in uh, the show itself. And we're going to discuss in this episode you know, the, the history of PR, where it all started, where it really became a profession, uh, what the implications are of our profession's history on what we do today. We'll talk about ethics, about preparing the next generation of PR students and professionals, and many other really interesting things. So without further ado, here we go. Enjoy the show. Well, hello, Tom. Welcome on this edition of uh, Wag the Dog FM. Oh, thank you. Great, great to meet you. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's great to meet uh, online. Having uh, this discussion, we'll be talking about the uh, the history of our profession of public relations. But you're not uh, you're you're traveling for the moment, right? Yes, I'm. I'm in uh, Leipzig in Germany. Um, I've been spending uh, three four days at the University of Leipzig, which is one of the best um, PR and communication management programs in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, they also have a very good archive here of. Um, the German PR pioneer Albert Erkel. Yeah. And so I've been spending the last day or so going through the Erkel archive. Wow, that must be fascinating to go through archives and, and really look at those uh, early signs of public relations. Yeah, he's, he, um, I have to say he kept everything. Um, he, he must have had a very um, forgiving wife or partner <laughs> because uh, these files have sort of everything down to... Uh, uh, you could imagine he went to a conference, so you have all the postcards, the taxi fares, you know, everything's in there. Wow, right so, so you get the whole, the whole atmosphere from... from yeah, yeah. Ah, nice. the, whole, the whole man, the whole man is there. Great. So, so Tom, I, I found you out, so to say, uh, by seeing an update on the uh, Facebook page of the uh, Museum of uh, PR. And uh, mm. you're running, you'll be present at, uh, and, and running, I think, the International History of Public Relations Conference in July. Yep, that's right. We, we started this uh, conference uh, in 2010, um, and this will be the sixth conference we've held. Um, we get papers from around the world. I think this year we've got well over 40 papers being presented from uh, speakers from a around 20 countries. So it's a genuinely international conference, uh, people coming from as far as New Zealand and, um, and obviously as close as uh, the UK. And the conference is held at Bournemouth University in the south of England, and Bournemouth's one of the leading PR programs in, in the UK. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it's an annual conference uh, held sort of early July each year, and uh, it's been part of a real explosion of uh, scholarship and research on the history of public relations. 
Well, it must be fascinating. I think uh, around July or after the conference, we'll uh, we'll have to check up on that, and then I'll I'll, I'll mm. definitely want to hear more about those uh, papers and the presentations that were held there because it's it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So, Tom, yeah. to get to the core of our discussion, the history of public relations, I'll tell you the truth. Uh, for me, it goes back to PR school, maybe even further now that I come to think of it. I did classical studies, so Latin Greek. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember that, of course, in retrospect, but I had a very good teacher of Latin and he always, he didn't really follow the books. And he said when we saw the writings of uh, Julius Caesar about his uh, De Bello Gallico, his, his combats here in Europe, that, you know, he... He told us straightforwardly that that was like much more a public affairs document than anything else, just to get more troops and more money. So, is what is that the the first PR public affairs kind of document, or or are we starting oh, earlier? Uh, <laughs> oh, there's sort of two ways of looking at it. One is um, you say, well, when did PR start becoming discussed as public relations or an organised practice? And my argument is it's probably towards the late end of the 19th century. But if you go back. You have what what I call proto-public relations and things like um, uh, you know, the Julius Caesar's writing, which is which I've used in, in lectures over time, uh, saying, well, why did he write it? It was to tell people what he was doing, to establish his reputation um, and uh, activities like that. And you can go back earlier. There are other examples of promotional activity which you can identify. Um, some people say that um, the first... Uh, God's first PR man was St. Paul, the apostle. Mm-hmm. Um, others argue that it was St. Augustine. Um, and you, it's a sort of um, how long is a piece of string type of argument. Sure. The, the difference sure. is they didn't think of it as being PR. They just thought it, it was a act, an activity to persuade others to recognize or follow their interest. So um, we tend to look at... Um, it is being a, a more modern practice than, than that. So the the um, uh, the interesting thing with the historical research that's been going on is that in some countries it's been un, as an organised practice has been going for a very long time. Um, in particular, Germany, where I am at present, um, you can track back. The, to 1848, the formation of a sort of state information office set up to uh, during the 1848 revolutions to express the interests of governments and get get to encourage coverage in the media, and then you have the again in Germany um, the uh, great Krupp engineering uh, mm-hmm. organization by 1870s. Uh, was uh, actively promoting itself in the media and by the late, sort of by 1890s, it established its own sort of news bureau. News bureau. So, you know, that's, that's a sort of European yeah. aspect. In America, there were activities going on well before the sort of Edward Bernays or Ivy Lee, whose names are often thrown around. Mm-hmm. In fact, railways in the United States were some of the earliest um, practitioners of, you know, what we would call public relations activity. But if you go back even to George Washington, um, George Washington in the 1780s was monitoring the media to check what messages were getting through and what was being said by him, and, you know, those around him would react to it. So there's there's a, a lot of activity 
You can go yeah, almost yeah. as far back as you want to, but the reality is what we call PR and what has become organized mm-hmm. has its beginnings in the late 19th century. But am I correct too, because we've mentioned in, in this brief introduction, we went from, you know, I, I start with the Romans and now we're with Caesar and then even you mentioned, of course, religions, of course. Uh, so, but is it true to say that it's politics, religion, those are all power-based organizations, has it to do with power and reach, and has it to do, and I think so, but has it to do from the start to do with power and convincing an audience? Is it about, you know, convincing an audience of a a certain point on the agenda of a power organization? Is that a kind of a definition that we can give or...? Those sorts of activities were going on. Um, there, there are different. I'll come to some different, slightly mm-hmm. different traditions. Um, but y- yes, because power was so uh, um, was held by various elites and groups in a in a far more concentrated manner than we have in today's society. So the concept of public relation being the f- creation of dialogue or the creation of mutual understanding. Um, is a relatively recent concept. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, power didn't only reside with the, the, the barons and the, and the, and the corporate the corporate entities. I mean, one of the, the examples that um, is often talked about in America is how Ivy Lee, who was one of the pioneers, very well known, very influential, how he influenced the Rockefeller family um, during um, very severe, very brutal industrial strikes in coal mines in Colorado and places like that. And so the story is always told it as being PR as a solely a sort of corporate power But on the other side of it, the unions were also organized as well, um, promoting their own cause. And in some some ways, there is a tradition which is only starting to come through in in scholarship and research of activist public relations um, being part of the whole of public relations from much earlier than we think. We tend to think of activism as a sort of 1970, 1980s type of Yeah, a new, a new thing. kind of, yeah, yeah. But actually, if you look at the work of some of the unions um, right in, in many of the industrialized nations, the unions were practicing public relations. And even in, in, in the UK, the Institute of Public Relations, which is now the Chartered Institute of mm-hmm. Public Relations, was was primarily its formation was primarily f- backed by a local government trade union the national association of local government officers in 1947-48 and what they were looking for was a career uh, a career recognition of the work they were doing as public relations officers or public relations managers and so here we have a professional institute for which a trade union, a large trade union, played an important part in its formation. So PR isn't just a corporate activity of power seeking to persuade or even, yeah. you know, distort uh, politics to its own advantage. There are, there are many examples of that mm. uh, in political communication, whatever, but it's not the only model. Yeah, it makes me think of, uh, I'm, uh, I'm a bit of a history buff myself, mostly military history, but it makes me think of, for instance, I just read uh, a book about the Luddites, people who were really dest- physically destroying mm. <laughs> industrial machines because, you know, that would take their job away and, and, and how they used papers and pamphlets and, and, and 
and also public speaking, of course, and all these things. So which are techniques that we are still using? I mean, if we want to put our CEO as a keynote speaker on a conference, well, that's public relations to me. Uh, if we, you know, if we're creating our own publishing uh, channels, then of course that is. And another thing that I'm thinking about is the um, uh, one of the, the the specific parts in history I'm interested in is, is the British Navy history. And again, you know, every commander at the time had to do good PR before, you know, being able to have his own ship, because otherwise it was just the Admiralty was just picking their friends. Uh, and they did that through you know, publishing articles in papers and being at the right, you know, moments in with the right people doing their networking. So it is a, a bit of a of a of an, uh, a general given, right? I mean, public relations is very broad, but but still it has an historical impact. Yeah. I mean, looking at just taking the naval example and looking at both the German and French naval expansion at the end of the 19th century, Mm -hmm. in the UK, the Navy League was established to support that sort of imperialist growth of of the Navy against threats from, uh, well, originally actually French threats from France and Mm -hmm. threats from Germany and and questions about Russia and and, um, all of that. Uh, And the Germans uh, responded to that by forming their own naval naval, um, support operations to get uh, people to back it and uh, to influence government to spend money. So, you know, it's... um, there's, there are many, many examples uh, that come through. The, the, the interesting th- thing is the use of the term propaganda, mm-hmm. which we often hear. And, and, of course, after the Second World War, you know, the, ch- the term propaganda has a, a deep black Co- you know, color yeah, to ne- negative connotation completely. You know, it's yeah. a wholly negative connotation. But actually, propaganda was a term uh, widely used by governments for informational publicity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really only started to become blackened during the First World War. And, and in particular, all the British example is that they used to talk about black, black propaganda and white propaganda. Mm-hmm. Um, white propaganda was telling the people about, you know, food and, you know, warnings about health and all sorts of things like that and promotion of empire or, you know, what was seen as sort of positive or informational or helpful stories. Black propaganda was the distortion, uh, you know, the, um, the, the, the ways that people were presented as wholly evil with no redeeming side to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and worse than that, distortion of, of news, uh, blocking of news, things like that. Um, so propaganda um, was, you know, was seen as uh, a part of public administration communication until it, um, these two world wars came along, in which in case the pejorative meaning of propaganda has changed forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, th- throughout history, have you are, are there moments where, and just taking a step back and looking at, let's say, seventeen hundreds and onwards, um, what what are the major moments in uh, public relations history? Have, have there been like huge shifts? Now we all are talking today about the huge shift with the internet and social media. Okay, that's a given, but. Still, I mean, the internet was born 25 years ago, so we, we still have things to, to, to look at and, and, and understand. But are there, in, in that, let's say, that modern era, uh, are there critical moments where you could say that has influenced public relations? Um... Well, um, there's, there's the greater the plurality of politics and the more open economies become, 
the greater the activity that is spent in in both competitive and persuasional activity. Um, so uh, times of economic growth are times when public relations um, has expanded rapidly. And equally, when, when you have repressive regimes, um, it's, it's much more difficult. And I'll just give, the, give you the example of Spain. Um, Spain uh, had a civil war. It had a dictatorship. It didn't take part in the Second World War and basically was, was uh, put to one side by the Allies after the war. Um, and it took the Spanish till probably the late 1960s before public relations started to take off. And once their economy started to open and then the end of the Franco regime came along, uh, then public relations grew quite very rapidly. Um, But in comparison, um, public relations in Western Europe took off very quickly after the Second World War. And if you're saying, well, when, when when did somebody throw the switch, you know, turn the power on, I would argue that the uh, post-war influence of America upon Western Europe was profound in many ways, um, and the what was known as the Marshall Plan or the European Reconstruction Plan, um, many people in many different fields, not just PR, were taken to America or worked with the United States United States Information Service. Um, and you can then see PR taking off all over Europe uh, from about 1947, 48 onwards. And so we ended up with the formation of groups like the International Public Relations Association, 1955, the formation of SERP, the um, Centre European for Relations Publique, around about the same time. And we started to see um, shortly after that the entry of the American PR networks, Hill and Knowlton, Burson Marstella, and one that's now forgotten called Barnett and Reef, entering Europe looking for partners. Mm-hmm. So if you're saying, you know, when when is the the big the big change the big growth? It's really um, post World War Two. Yeah, yeah. Those 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 countries in the western in western europe which were open democracies um and were allies um expanded very rapidly in fact even germany took off fairly quickly as well because it was seen as part of a and the word was often used part of a bulwark against communism so it needed to have a democracy and a strong economy as well so that's that's the big change that's when so so much happened, the people started working in PR, people came out of journalism into PR. Yeah, I was then, going to say, is that the period where public relations suddenly becomes a, a, a serious job? Yes, it does. <laughs> um, you know, it started to become, um, you know, it's, it's an immediate model was media relations. Um, and then you saw um, really the corporate communicators start to look at it in a bit more strategic manner. Um and then from the 1970s, late 70s onwards, you start to see rapid entry of women into the public relations workforce to such that we would say it is um, a, very much a feminized um, uh, sector now and uh, with, you know, providing a massive amount of employment for women. Yeah, um, so also, the top level. Yeah, well, yes, except at the top level, though, um, you know, it's there have been very strong women leaders in the agency field, mm-hmm. um, but it, it, but you're right, it is still difficult um, to see that women have anywhere near the uh, ratio of appointments to uh, to employment 
you know, that sort of percentage ratio. Mm. Um, but that, that's, that was the big change. And then that, that then rolled out around the world. So the 1970s became the era of agency expansion. Um, and, but it was built on the top of the work that had been done by corporate and governmental PR people, then the formation of professional associations, and then education, and then really agency built on top of that. Mm-hmm. Do you uh, see differences uh, in geography? We, okay, let's say that, it, of course, the, the bulk of the, let's say, the, the, the professionalism, um, the, the methodology of working comes from the US over to Europe, after the, the world wars and then is, is, is there a difference for, I don't know, in maybe in Asia or, or in other parts of, of, of the globe that you see, well, uh, they, they took a different direction or, or is that not the case? Well, just to say, just to explain part of my answer comes from uh, the uh, project I've been leading. Uh, I've just edited a series of six books on the world history of public relations, um, which is called National Development, National Perspectives, I should say, National Perspectives on the Development of Public Relations. Uh, and the, the, there are five of the books are region, regional. So there's Asia and Australasia, uh, Eastern Europe, Middle East and Africa, Uh, Latin America and um, Western Europe, and the final one is about historiography, which is the writing of history. Mm-hmm. The it, it brings out certainly in Asia there are very different models, very culturally and religiously different models of public relations. Um, though you do have this sort of um, veneer of international agency style PR, which operates, and that's largely at the, to to suit the needs of the client rather than to suit the needs of the audiences that they're appealing to. Um, so in Thailand, to give you an example, uh, public relations has very strong linkages culturally to Buddhism um, and also because it's a, a very strongly mo- monarchical state um, to hierarchy within society. Mm-hmm. Um, if you come in with a sort of, you know, whiz-bang Western-style PR campaign, it'll almost certainly fail in Thailand, um, whereas it might go down really well in the United States. It'll probably bomb in Thailand because it doesn't understand the cultural cues. And so Thai public relations, for instance, is um, quite different and historically quite different uh, as well. Um, and th- these examples, uh, I mean, the Chinese market, is enormous and it operates very differently to Western markets. The Chinese are now starting to expand outside uh, outside their, their borders. Um, and you can also see different models of public relations in Latin America um, and uh, to some extent in the um, Arab nations because they, again, have a two-tier PR system. One is for the international companies and the other one is for to understand the cultural and religious needs of their societies. So it, it is very varied. There is no one model. And, and even though if we look at both Western Europe and Eastern Europe where American models came in, um, they have been subsequently quite widely modified and adapted to local local need, local understandings, local politics, local societies. Yeah, and that is, I mean, from my experience, that is um, something that I've seen 
Um, there's there's two conferences I go to every year. It's the um, the summit of the European Association of Communication Directors, of which I'm a member, and then there there's the uh, the World Communications Forum uh, in in Davos, which is much more international in the way that it also includes speakers from Asia, from Russia, from 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 Africa, mm. and uh, and it is again last time a couple of months ago it was again so nice to see how in a certain way we do the same we have the same profession we do the same things fundamentally but how we do that with which kind of um, accents we do that that is totally different I spoke with the representative from the Chinese Public Relations Association um, the, the the Minister of Communications from Morocco was there uh, we had a nice um, a nice speaker which I interviewed for Wagadog about cultural intelligence and differences in communication so it, it, it is true truly global and different at the same time yeah yeah, yeah. so the way the way things have been um, uh, have taught and and this is I think one of the problems with many of the textbooks that we we have uh, they PR has been taught as a single model mm-hmm. uh, with a single and it's a very American model and you know the Americans got in they've written a lot of the textbooks um, and uh, their history of public relations is a wholly American history in fact there's a, a great belief in parts of the United States that PR is is an American concept um, yet I have to say the, the, the vast amount of historical work that's done now is that it isn't, um, or it isn't solely an American concept. It's definitely been a very, you know, it's the most important uh, influence, single influence, but it's not the only influence um, uh, upon the, the profession and its growth. And um, Because that is something, as you said, I mean, when I studied, all the books were based on American, you know, that, that all of them were American uh, models, writers. Uh, there was maybe I think there was one book from a professor here in in Belgium at the the VUB, the the Free University. But otherwise, it was all you know very much American modern and all these things. Now um, and and even then, uh, yes, it's methodology. Yes, you have an approach, and yes, a, a certain things. But at the same time, when you look at one of the things that is always being said, and I think it's an American who said it, is that all communications is local. So how can you then have... And that is also something that comes back in international campaigns. Can we have truly global PR campaigns uh, where the idea behind that is, well, it's made somewhere and it will work everywhere, which is totally nonsense, I think. Yeah. But but that is something that you see again in when, when, when the research pops up uh, from a historical point of view. Well, the... There are. Um, let me let me sort of stop and start again. Sure. Um, in terms, just and okay, rolling again. In terms of international public relations, it is it is a model of practice which is imposed, um, and it's often for efficiency reasons. Um, in, companies can't run large campaigns in every country in which they operate. Um, and so we often see what is called international public relations is actually adaptation of material from the centre for a local local markets. Um, and I know from our students getting jobs in many of the agencies, they 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 find that one of their early jobs when they go there is is revamping hand uh, material that's come in from headquarters in in whatever country the client is. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but it's not actually saying, well, what is the need of the British market or the British audience or who are we targeting, things like that. It's saying, well, let's here's, here's the pot of jam. Let's see how far we can spread yeah. it without changing the jam. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that is often what is conceived of as public relations. And it's, it's, um, it doesn't work and it doesn't work when um, countries in, uh, for example, Asian countries with a lot of their tourism PR um, can get it quite wrong sometimes because they're talking to, back home. Actually, they're talking backwards to their sponsors and their governments rather than talking to the um, audiences that they're seeking to, to engage. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, but uh, in... It's the the history of public relations at present isn't full of excellent um, case studies of long term um, international PR campaigns. Now that doesn't mean they aren't there. It's just that no one no one has found them yet. <laughs> okay. When when you look at the um, from a historical perspective, how 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 do you see the the use of technology today in communications, not only, well, a big part of course is the so-called new thing, social media, which is again, has been around for, for a couple of years now. Uh, mm. But how, how do you see that as an impact in the, on the historical uh, line? Well, actually I, earlier this year, I uh, had an article published about the, um, uh, looked at the, ad- the adoption of IT in the ninth- from the mid-1970s to the mid-1990s um, by PR. And it was very interesting to see how extremely conservative uh, a lot of the reaction to it was. Um, and uh, the big concern expressed was that, that people, ordinary people, would be swamped with so much information they wouldn't know how to cope with it. Mm-hmm. And, they, and there was a lot of writing and commentary about the ter- using the term information overload. Now, I think we all accept we are overloaded with information. We've got information we can get from so many sources, but we've been quite able to find our way through it. You know, we ignore some things, we choose some things, we follow others. But the PR in general from this 20-year period was very, very slow and it really passed the lead on the understanding of the use of email, the very early internet um, to others in communication areas. And I think PR, it took most of the 1990s to wake up to what an important opportunity it was, um, by which time there were all sorts of groups formed called digital agencies and communication specialists and whatever who didn't call themselves PR, didn't see themselves at it and considered this to be a to- and, you know, not, not PR. Uh, it was a whole new practice area. And we've seen over the past 15 years or so uh, a lot of work quite expensive work by agencies and others to buy in expertise, set up operations and ca- and capture this, uh, re- try and recapture this market. And uh, I think the jury's out on whether um, PR as we know it um, has, f- has fundamentally changed, um, but it's for certain it's cost the industry an awful lot because of its inability to recognise the opportunity that was put before it. And that's it's fairly well documented now. Um, you know, um, the, diffusion of, the diffusion of innovation uh, 
uh, in public relations was a very, very slow process. Yeah, I mean, it's something I was, I started an agency in the early 90s. And uh, later on, of course, uh, maybe I'm not a good example, because then I moved in-house at IBM, where everything was about technology. But I always wondered how, how it was possible that, and the agencies I work with were so reticent about online, were really conservative about what I then saw as an opportunity and what later on the company saw as an opportunity. And we worked on that Mm. and came out with the guidelines and all these things when we were talking about social media. But it is still very conservative. I spoke to someone in an agency, and this is Global Network, Brussels-based office, Mm. where people are still putting stuff in Excel lists, where it's so conservative, so, so basic that... I really don't understand where that comes from, and uh, it, it it is uh, it is really a strange given that the pickup wasn't bigger because a lot of people saw the opportunity. When you look at how NGOs, for instance, jumped on the internet on the web, recognizing it immediately as a global communications tool, which was cheap, free, or cheap, mm-hmm. and what they did with that, and it's still the case today. I see much more creativity coming out of NGOs, Cape. Than, than out of more classical organizations, although they have the same exactly the same tools and the same resources. Yeah, it was interesting. The, I think the the technology jump that PR un, understood was the fax machine, <laughs> okay. um, because instead of having to you know print off all these press releases, staple them, fold them, put them in envelopes, you know, run them through the posting machine, rush off down and get them sent off, and then there was a question of when they'd arrive, the fax machine came up and you just put all the journalists' numbers in there and whatever and he sent them by fax. It seemed to me that in looking at it, and both from because I was a practitioner around that time as well, and also the historical records that I've been going through, is the fax machine somehow stultified PR's ability to see the opportunity that email and then um, the internet, the early internet was offering. Um, And it was noticeable that um, it was the rapid rise of technology PR in the mid to late 90s, um, which was the sector that understood it. Uh, And that was a very different group of people, many of them not with any training in PR, but able to talk wirehead stuff um, with their clients. And um, that that area boomed, um, whereas the rest of the sector sort of sat and sat and looked and wondered what was going on. Yeah. Now, before we we started the interview, we chatted a bit, and uh, on my agenda for a next episode is is a, is a good discussion uh, about ethics in our profession. If you put that in in historical context, do you see? Were there changes or, or or when did we start thinking about uh, ethics for our profession? Was it something that was pushed upon like, oh, you know, you, you really need to have an ethical code in your profession because everybody's doing it or whatever? Or, or was that something, is it different from a historical perspective? When when are we starting to talk about ethical PR or ethics in public relations? There were in the United States... Um, from the 1920s onwards, as they started to form their own professional associations, there were discussions about ethics there. But the real boom in ethics again came after the Second World War with the formation of professional associations. And one of the topics that all these professional bodies had um, was some form of code of ethics. And uh, the one I've studied most closely was the, the Code of Athens, 
um, which was written uh, by a Frenchman by the name of Lucien Matra and introduced by the International Public Relations Association in 1965. Yeah, that's the, code, that's the code I got at school that we all had to sign. Yeah, That's right. So, But it was only called the Code of Athens because they had a meeting in Athens which agreed it. So it was um, it, uh, it had nothing Athenian <laughs> or, or philosophical. Though it was based very heavily on the UN's Declaration of Human Rights yep. from 1948. The trouble with the code, of, the code of Athens was it was totally... It was impossible for it to be implemented as a practical ethical process, uh, and even from the very early days, um, IPRA had great problems uh, with some of its own members saying, "Look, you know, we we like the sentiments in this, but actually, it doesn't work." Um, and they pointed up many problems with it, and it you might be amused to know that in the the period from 1965 to 2002, which is the a period of the uh, of the International Public Relations Association archive that we hold at my university, not one member of IPRA was pulled up on any form of ethics complaint, mm. and that's a period of 37 years. Now, I don't. I know the people in IPRA are probably very nice, very able people, but it's almost beggar's belief that. Um, no one fell foul of any ethical issues according to the Code of Athens. So one of the things that history tells us is if you're going to have a Code of Ethics, it's got to be workable and it's got to apply to real lives and real situations, whereas the Code that Matra wrote was wonderful in its sentiment but actually had very little to do um, ab about the normal practice of you know, the relationships between clients and and PR people and PR people and the media and PR people and like, with each other. Um, and um, it, so it's a constant, constant issue. Now it's bedeviled even more uh, with uh, the internet and social media and the ability that people have to act in deceptive and very difficult to track manners. Um, but still, at the heart of all ethical processes, uh, issues like truth and fair dealing, that you, you act honourably, you tell the truth, um, and if you don't, you should be uh, somehow sanctioned if it can be proven. So, you know, ethics is, is a, a constant big issue. It's not just for PR. We often beat ourselves hard about, you know, ethical issues in PR, but there are ethical issues across all sectors, all mm -hmm. professions. Yeah. PR is no no worse or no worse than any other group. Yeah. In fact, if anything, um, people are more sensitive now than they used to be. So um, I, I I wish your next discussion well, but I, I do hope that it's it's uplifting and thinking about okay, let's how we can make ethics a positive thing. And yeah, I, I think that is something that that we as an industry really need to look at is is to make it a positive uh, a positive thing, um, but also a very practical thing. Otherwise, again, it's it's full of nice sentiments, but uh, we already have a couple of those ethical guidelines which are full of nice sentiments. It needs to be practical, definitely. Yeah. 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 So, so, but there's 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 there is a historical discussion of historical background to these, uh, and certainly. Um, I've done research, as I said, on the Code of Athens, but also looking at the other application of other codes over time. And, and having once chaired 
um, a sort of professional practices stroke, you know, slash ethics committee over some time, it is it is a devil of a job. Um, yeah. Because nothing is sort of black and white. The whole idea of you say, ah, I accuse you of, of you know, being deceptive and doing this, that and the other. Um, it's, it's extremely difficult yeah, to yeah. Um, get solid evidence. And even if you work on the civil standard of balance of probability, it's, it's still a very tough area to work on. So, um, you know, in fact, the sort of thing that worries me more than sort of great big ethical issues is the ethical pre- pressure that's often put on junior staff who are encouraged to undertake practices which they are very worried about because they feel they're not ethical and they're told that if it's sort of it's my way or the highway type of mm-hmm. attitudes they get from managers. And, and my work with students has nearly always been around how do you resolve those ethical challenges that you will face, um, you know, which are outside the, the big issues that codes look at yeah. uh, but, are, but are about your personal integrity. But you see, the, the thing is, I had a discussion here with a, a couple of Belgian PR schools, and uh, one of the things, one of the um, in the curriculum, one of the things that fell out of the curriculum is ethics. Uh, when I studied public relations a long time ago, we had mm. a course called Ethics, and uh, that course doesn't exist anymore. And I, I do think that if students don't even know what the code of ethics, I most of my, I think all of them, except one of my interns. Have never heard about the code of Athens um, or any other ethical code, and yeah. uh, and I think if we don't give them those basis basic ideas which are behind those ethical codes, even if they're not practical, but the good common sense ideas and values, then of course it's very very difficult for them to have a discussion when they are asked to do some stuff that they really feel is not really ethical. So. Yeah, there yeah. is there is still a, a lot of work to to be done. Yeah. Yeah. Tom, as a, as a, as a closing question, uh, who is your favorite historical public relations figure? <laughs> oh, um, uh, and why, of course? <laughs> I'm not a great man person, um, <laughs> and uh, in fact, if all of my historical. Um, uh, historical inclinations are to look more at political, societal and economic. I mean, one of the things I I think is wrong about American PR history, not not by some of the people I work with, but the old version, was the excessive attention paid to Edward Bernays, Ivy Lee, Arthur Page. Mm -hmm. Um, And, um, you know, I I think they're overweighted in in these things. So, uh, to be honest, I I don't have... Um, a favorite, a favorite person, um, and a moment maybe a historical mm-hmm. moment, um, or a change or an impact in the profession at a certain given time in history. I, I have to say, I've always been very um, impressed by how the um, in Germany the industrialization of of Germany. Uh, in the second half of the 19th century led to the development of really quite sophisticated corporate communications. Um, so I wouldn't say it's favorite. I have a, 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 a very a, a grudging admiration for companies like Krupp and, and others like it who saw the opportunity that good communication would offer them and establish their reputations worldwide um, and uh, far wider than um, just 
the, the home market of Germany. Yeah. In fact, um, Krupp's, Krupp's great stunt, and maybe this is my favourite moment, um, which was sort of promotional, was uh, it's, it uh, somehow made Forge put together a two-and-a-half-tonne block of steel and took it to the, um, the Great Exhibition of 1851 in, in London, and that was the real showstopper, the, this incredibly dense steel that they were able to make, um, and that made their reputation for a long time. So whether you call it PR, promotion, all of those things, it was, mm-hmm. it was very clever and ahead of its time. They understood the, the value of good PR, good media coverage, good events as a whole package a lot earlier than many of their competitors. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because then I invite you to listen to one of my earlier podcast interviews with one of their global uh, communication directors. Uh, I interviewed um, Louis, who is uh, based in Germany, and he's responsible for the global communications of their uh, elevator business. And I think the way... Uh, these people talk about public relations and, and, and the passion they have for the job is, is probably something that, you know, comes back from the time you just mentioned. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, I mean, yes. So I, let, let's say that's, that, that's the, the, the historical element, which, cause it set the baseline for so much that followed. Great. Tom, again, remind us when the uh, international conference is. History, international history of Con- public relations conferences on, um, July 8th and 9th. It's at Bournemouth University in the south of England. Um, it's a short walk from the uh, conference to the beach. Um, nice. And, uh, and uh, it has speakers from uh, 20 countries or more. Okay. And that is open to all, right? Yes, yes. The, if you go to historyofpr.com online, you can register and join us. Great. I'll put the, uh, I'll put the link definitely in the show notes. And uh, thank you very much, Tom, for uh, doing this interview. It's, it's a great topic. I, I hope we can do this again and then maybe take a certain period and discuss history uh, yeah. because it's great to, uh, to see what's, what's happening uh, both now but also what happened and how we can learn from, from the things that happened in the past. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Hope you enjoyed this uh, episode, dear listener. I know I did. I'm making a note in my agenda to talk to uh, Professor Watson again after the uh, international conference so that we can zoom in on a couple of these research papers on the uh, history of our profession. Really like that. Um, Next week, Monday, next episode, um, I'm a bit confused. I don't really know what's on the agenda. They've been taped, edited and ready. Uh, But you'll discover that. I mean, why should I tell you what you're going to hear next week? That way, you know, it stays a surprise. So uh, if you like the show, of course, please give a review on iTunes. Very important. And uh, to close this one, I'll uh, give you a beautiful quote of Lord Acton. History is not a burden on the memory, but an illumination of the soul. Till next week, do the right thing. Keep the peace.